Our scripture this morning is taken from the book of 1 Peter, the second chapter beginning with the second verse. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourself be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe, he is precious. For, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builder rejected has become the very head of the corner. And a stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of God. Mothers have an indescribable drive to feed their children. Each and every one of us here is truly indebted to a mother for keeping us alive. Marcella, my daughter, my eldest daughter, had a particular problem, and she owes a lot, in my opinion, to her mama, Colleen. Her particular problem is she couldn't do the one thing, the one thing required of her at birth to live. She couldn't latch. Therefore, she couldn't eat. And I watched as my wife toiled emotionally for hours and days and weeks with nurses, lactation consultants, certain medical devices, blogs and books. How can I get my kid to latch so that she can have the nourishment she needs? One day I came home from work. I thought I was exhausted. It was one of those long days in ministry work that happens from time to time, and I hadn't been getting much sleep. We had a newborn in the house. When I came into the kitchen and looked into the living room, I saw a picture that put my tiredness to shame. There was Colleen, not just tired but broken, on the couch, she had tears streaming down her cheeks. She had a boppy pillow still around her belly, and she was sobbing. Why won't she latch? Babies need nourishment. Mamas know this, and so mamas try to figure out how best to nourish babies. St. Peter knows this truth of life too, and he thinks it an apt metaphor for his own audience, which is none less than the church. You see, the church too needs nourishment, especially when the church is filled with youthful ones in the spirit. They need a certain kind of nourishment. They need milk rather than solid food. 
That's how he begins this section of text this morning. And in using this metaphor, Peter begins to take the opportunity to explain really plainly in his own words about the nature of the church, what the church is supposed to be exactly. Now, when we study texts like this, it should come with a warning. Preachers and teachers will repeat what the Bible says about the church, and you might just find out that the way you think about the church before you read the text, well, maybe it didn't line up quite so well with what Scripture would have you believe. I think that might be the case with what St. Peter says today in our own hearing. See, the first observation that Peter makes follows a certain metaphorical agility indeed. He goes from speaking of nourishment for Christians to then speaking of masonry in order to uncover a deeper, deeper meaning of church life. The very first observation I'd like to make for you this morning about Peter's own observations is simply this. Coming to Christ means also by necessity you will come into a greater community. Let me say that again in another way. When you come to Christ, you will also come into a church. Verses 4 through 5 make that plain enough. Scholars have noted for centuries now that when Peter describes Jesus as a living stone, you see he begins to talk about stonework here. He's referring to Psalm 118 verse 22. There in the psalm, the psalmist is thinking about God's person who would come on God's behalf, calls him a living stone, a rejected one, no doubt. I, Howard Marshall, the biblical scholar, puts it this way. It's as if this living stone has been cut and prepared by an architect and designed for the cornerstone of a building, but when it was delivered to the builders, they looked it over, they looked at their plans, they looked at the building, they scratched their heads and thought, well, it doesn't really fit the bill. It doesn't do the trick. And so the cornerstone is rejected, even though the architect designed it so. The metaphor is pretty simple, really. God is the architect. Jesus is the living cornerstone. And the builders are all the people like you and me who hope to one day in our life have a sense of fulfillment in the divine life. Peter goes on further to say more about this, that Jesus is the living cornerstone, but when you come to him, you also realize that you yourself become like stones, and your life gets piled up on other lives. At the base of all of them is that living cornerstone, and when taken all together, what you have is a formalized building that Peter would call a temple. Now, do you know what a temple is? I'm sure you do. Tomorrow at work, at a water cooler moment, if someone were to come to you and say, define a temple for me, you'd probably have an easy definition off the top of your head, wouldn't you? I know, but I'm going to tell you anyway what I think a good definition is. You see, a temple simply is a place for the indwelling of divinity. It's a place for God to abide with his creatures. That is the point and that is the purpose of all such temples. And here, St. Peter tells us, that when you come to Christ, a temple is built. The temple is none other than the community of Christians together. You see, friends, Peter makes it plain. When you come to Christ, you come into a church. You come into togetherness and solidarity. I like it when my wife instructs her children, our children, to clean their room. 
Sometimes we have to do a little goading and tricking. We, we the other day, just started singing a little song. Clean up, clean up, everybody everywhere. Clean up, clean up, everybody do your share. Why didn't you start singing with me? <laughs> I know all of you know that little ditty. We expect it in our home to be like Pavlov's dog. When we start singing it, the kids would just start moving the way we want to. Sometimes it works, but with kids, it's chaos. So sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes their finicky fussiness comes to the fore. Sometimes they say no, and sometimes they act like they can't hear you. And so Marcella begins to teach them, pardon me, Colleen begins to teach Marcella and Ruby these wonderful lessons. To be a member of the Longbond's home, you clean your room. To be a member of this family, we go to our siblings' events. To be a member of this household, you pick up after yourself. The point is clear. To be here means to be part of a community. And to be part of a community requires responsibilities of you. It requires duty on your behalf to and for others. Peter says, when you want to come to Jesus, you find yourself in community. You find yourself in relationships of duty and responsibility by necessity with other people. I'm not certain that you and I like that all the time. It sounds nice. But all too often, our contemporary world looks for disjointed and individualistic means by which to come to Jesus Christ. We want our salvation. We want our hope. We want our glory. But we don't want to be beholden to each other. At least that's often the case. I remember when I was selling furniture full-time, working in a small disciples church in Moreau, Illinois, part-time, and was in seminary full-time. This busy boy selling furniture, and this lady came in, and I went to her, and I began asking her what her needs were, and she got excited to tell me that she wanted to outfit a space in her home to be real comfortable for a gathering of Christians. I got excited to meet another resident alien out in the world, so I began talking to her about my church and my studies. Oh, and she said, oh, I hate church. I said, what? Oh, I hate church. She said again the exact same way. I said, well, I'll bite. Why? Well, and then she gave me that laundry list of reasons why people hate church, you know, the institutionalism, the bureaucracy committees, that backbiting group over here, that gossipy group over here, and the preacher's always asking about money. We never get anything done. Nag, nag, nag. I had a few ladies like this in my congregation before. That's all I'll say about it. She told me something kind of odd, at least to the ears of a minister and seminarian. She said, in my own personal private prayer time, in my own personal private prayer time, God told me something. How convenient. God told me that the church was something that I could leave behind me. I said, God told you that? Someone who was studying in seminary, I wasn't sure what text she was reading as somebody who was serving a church, I wasn't sure what worship form she was practicing, but it troubled my heart. It didn't seem quite right. But it is a desire in a lot of us to, to have the, the good feeling of God, but without all the pesky people that were beholden to along the way. 
funny thing is, St. Peter's truth is universal. When you come to Christ by necessity, you come into community. And you know what she told me after this? She said, well, I started meeting in my home by myself with God. I'd open my Bible, I'd get some juice and some bread, and I'd pray, and I'd eat. Then I told a few friends, and they decided they wanted to come over and study the Bible with me and share communion. I snickered as I realized, and she didn't realize it yet, that she had stumbled right back into the community called church once again. Because when you come to Christ, by necessity, you come into community. The second observation I'd like to make of St. Pete's observations is this. Coming to Christ requires a single-minded focus. Verses 6 through 8 make this plain. Here St. Peter is pulling on material from the Psalter. He quotes a bit from Isaiah, all ultimately saying this. Look, if you are a believer in Jesus, this living stone will be precious to you. Might as well be like a gemstone. But if you don't believe, then the living stone of Christ will be to you nothing more than a stumbling block. I do remember one time having a 104 degree temperature. I was a youngin. I was delirious and hearing and seeing things, moaning. My mom hopped up right out of bed because you know how mamas are. They've got a radar for their babies when they're sick. She ran out of her bedroom across the hall and into my own, and then I was awoken from my slumber, my sickly slumber, from her screaming out. She stepped on one of my Legos. <laughs> you know, one of those blue, primary colored, sharp Legos. How many of you have ever stepped on a Lego? It's no good. A true stumbling block indeed. St. Peter says that if you don't believe in Christ, he's a stumbling block to you. And I wonder, I wonder out loud this morning with you, why? Why on earth would Jesus Christ be a stumbling block to those that don't believe? I mean, I listen to the world really well. And I've been hearing the same thing you've been hearing. Jesus is a really good guy. I mean, he did a lot of groovy things, man. He said a lot of revolutionary stuff about love, brother. This guy, Jesus, he went out there and he told people just to love each other and they got all upset at him and they wanted him dead, man. Look at this. You can, you can find benign Jesuses out on the shelves. Someone bought me this dashboard Jesus. It says, enlightenment on a spring. <laughs> he looks without authority and without power. You can see in our culture, Buddy Christ shirts and Jesus is my homeboy hats. And we've really painted this nice picture of Jesus being a bit of a proto-hippie who just wants everyone to chill out and love each other. But when you take that picture of Jesus to the scriptures to find out what Jesus said about himself, you find the description ignorant. Let's see what Jesus said about his own self. He said, I am like the way man into the kingdom. There is no other. Jesus liked to say, you can call me kurios, which means Lord, in an era and in a world where it was only legal to say that Caesar is kurios or Lord. It was political suicide. 
Jesus said, hey, you've seen God? If you've seen me, we are one. Jesus says, I am the place where humanity and divinity come together in perfect unity. He says all such things about his own self. If he's incorrect, he's a loony. If it's true and you believe it, then it requires everything of you. So if you don't believe well, I can see how it would be a stumbling block. Touche, St. Peter. The third observation about what St. Peter has to say about the church this morning is finally this. When you come to Christ and you come into his church with that single-minded focus, you're given work to do, you're given a new identity, and that identity is nothing less than a priest. When you come to Christ, you become a priest. Verses 9 through 10 make this plain. The teaching is really antithetical to individualism. Individualism starts with a rather large version of me, draw a circle around me, and then you begin to define the world outwardly from you and against you. No. Here is the invitation to come to Christ and thus to come into his church, which takes you very, very deep, incomprehensibly deep into the life of true community, where you have solidarity with one another, where you find out that your fates are bound together. Oh, it's a different kind of mentality, so much so that Peter tries new words and metaphors to describe this group of people. He uses the word race, but he doesn't imply ethnicity. He uses the word nation, but it doesn't have sociological or political or geographical boundaries or borders. It doesn't have a language except for love. The one I like that he uses best is royal priesthood. And here he quotes from Exodus 19.6 when Moses is up on that holy hill of God with God receiving those great commandments, the constitution of the people of God. And when he comes down, he gives it to them. And for the first clear time in human history, the people of God have the ways of God and to be practiced therefrom into the world. And that's the mechanics of priesthood in a nutshell. A priest is a mediator, someone who stands on behalf of God to the world, representing God's ways for the world, but somebody who also represents the world before God. Let me tell you a great priest that I know. It's my mother-in-law, Patty. She is the priest of her property. Out on a farm, she's taken the whole back lot Build berms, planted natural prairie grasses and prairie flowers. She's etched out gardens for growing some of her food. Last summer, she took out Ruby and Marcella and all the other grands, and they walked the cobblestone paths of that garden. They counted asparagus plants. She taught them what marigolds were for and how they could keep bunnies away. Then they went over to this old reclaimed fence that had beans growing up on it, and they snapped the beans off and tasted them right off the plant themselves. You see, Patty is a priest par excellence because she represents God to the world by flushing out of each plant and the soil the very potential of life that's there. And she represents the life of her plant and her place to God because every time she brings in a harvest, she puts it before God and says, thank you, Father, for the gift, even though it's something I'm going to consume, I give it back to you. Oh, friends, Peter is saying, when you come to Christ, you get involved in the church, 
and you become a collection of priests. That means we are a people, a race of priests who go about the world showing the way of God to the world, representing God's justice in the world, bringing God's will to bear on the world. And then we also stand on behalf of a broken world before God. We lift it up as the good end, as God is the good end for all things. Friends, just remember when you read Peter, when you come to Christ, you find out you come to a community of priests. That's the church. I'm so thankful that for 92 years, our holy alma mater, which is nourishing mother in Latin, our holy alma mater, Peachtree Christian Church, has been carrying out God's mission at this corner. Our founders were priests with concrete and glass. They elevated the eye and the imagination. This is not just a space for worship. This building is a piece of worship itself. Don't be fooled. But they did more than that. They sought to build community around here. They called out to the city saying, these doors are open for prayer. They said, it doesn't matter what denomination you're from. Come and let's break bread together. They were a place of unity and hope. This place has uplifted children for 92 years. This is the children's window. The center window is dedicated to our children. Friends, there is so much about this place that's lovely and good, and priests have been here for 92 years, and its cornerstone has been Jesus Christ. All those other priests have been mighty stones stacked atop, and you and I, as we sit here today, have this exciting idea that we are stones too, and we get to pile ourselves up on those already piled up stones. What a strong foundation. What a profound legacy. And now it's up to us to get to dream the dreams, to see visions, to ask, how can we be a life-giving community for the future? How can we be priestly in our duties tomorrow? I have some ideas. No doubt you do too. I know one thing, we're going to press forward and we're going we're to come to the issue of ra racial reconciliation with our whole heart. We are going to come to creation care and roll up our sleeves and we're going to care for God's green earth. We're going to frame a house in our parking lot and give it away to someone needy. We're going to continue to share Christ with people, build believers and serve others. Basically, friends, we're going to keep making Jesus Christ known and we're going to keep trying to bring God's justice to bear in the land. Isn't it great? Aren't you excited? Doesn't it make you want to go out right now and get some work done? If I were in the locker room giving you the, hey, Gipper, rousing speech, I'd tell you it's time to man up. But I don't know that that's appropriate here. And I don't think saying woman up is any more appropriate. Perhaps the word of the day is it's time for us all to priest up. Are you ready to priest up? I asked you a question. Yes. Then do it.